You've heard the expression that a picture is worth a thousand words, no doubt. I think everybody likes pictures. Children certainly like picture books, but I think adults like picture books, too. It's fun to look at old pictures, isn't it? Old family photos, or um, I enjoy old pictures taken in this area in the 30s and 40s, you know, before it was all built up, when it was lemon groves, and there was uh, just Euclid Avenue, and I guess Mountain Avenue that, that uh, went north here, and it was, uh, it was really quite a different place from the, the uh, urban density that we experience now. But everybody loves pictures. I, in particular, like pictures from World War II. I'm uh, fascinated with World War II personally, and the photos from some of the combat uh, photographers are really quite something, where they uh, had themselves in positions of really uh, extreme personal risk to be able to capture in uh, black and white primarily uh, some of the most iconic moments of that great struggle that engulfed the entire world. Probably one of the most iconic photos, maybe one of the most enduring photos taken from that period was taken on the summit of a small volcanic cone located on a small island in the Pacific Ocean. Mount Suribachi rises 554 feet above the beaches of Iwo Jima. And there on the fourth day of a battle that was more than a month in duration and claimed the lives of nearly 7,000 United States Marines and nearly triple that number of Japanese soldiers, a small group of beleaguered Marines five of them and one Navy corpsman, managed to raise the United States flag on the summit of Mount Suribachi. And it was an incredible moment, and it was an inspiration for those Marines that were dying and bleeding on the beaches below. Incredibly, it was captured in a photograph by a man by the name of uh, Joe Rosenthal. And he won the Pulitzer Prize that year, a Pulitzer Prize for photography for that particular photo. And the interesting thing is he didn't even know that he had gotten it. He was still setting it up to try to get the best picture he could, and and he turned and just snapped it. And in the days before digital photography, of course, there was no way to know the image that he could have gotten, and so he sent off his film to be developed, and the person who developed it recognized the incredible image that he managed to capture. And it went on to um, really to international acclaim and uh, has uh, been viewed millions and millions of times, becoming the inspiration for the United States Marine Corps uh, War Memorial in Arlington, Virginia. I don't know if you've ever wondered what might have happened to those six men five Marines, one Navy corpsman. Actually, three of those Marines did not survive the battle. Three of them were killed there at Iwo Jima in a matter of just a few days. Three others were withdrawn from the fight by order of President Roosevelt himself, and they were brought back to the United States, and they achieved a sort of celebrity status where they toured the United States 
in a war bond drive that was quite successful, raising many, many hundreds of millions of dollars in order to support the ongoing war efforts. The Battle of Iwo Jima was a very hard-fought contest because it was the beginning of the conquest of the Japanese homeland itself. An amazing, amazing photo. Beloved, planting a flag, planting a flag, is a declaration of our allegiance and a staking out of our territory. It's a powerful, symbolic gesture, a powerful gesture. When our children were younger, Carol and I would often talk to them about planting their flag. And we would talk to them about that in in the context of new social situations, whether it would be in a work environment or perhaps in a new school situation. Wherever they were going into some place new, we would would often speak to them about the importance of planting their flag, that is, to, to declare outwardly and openly and quickly their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ to look for some opportunity to make public the fact that they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, to to make that declaration before an unbelieving world. Now, the Lord Jesus himself gave us a a one-time and very powerful declaration of allegiance, and that is water baptism. It is when we go through the waters of baptism that we make public before the world our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is a one-time event. But certainly there are many, many other times that come up in your life and mine where it's really important that we, we stake that claim again, that we make that claim again, that we plant our flag and let the world know that we are followers of Christ. As we get out there and, and get into it, it's important for us to stake it out, and to let the world know that Jesus is our Savior and that we are committed to following Him. Open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, and this morning, message entitled, Planting Your Flag for Jesus, we will be looking at verses 69 through 75. 69 through 75 of Matthew chapter 26. Now in the flow of the narrative here, this section uh, follows Matthew's account of Jesus' trial before the religious authorities of of, uh, Israel there in Jerusalem. Matthew has introduced Peter into the narrative in verse 58 of this chapter where Uh, Jesus has been taken, uh, bound, first to Annas and then here to Caiaphas. And verse 58, Peter is introduced into the narrative where it says he followed at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And he entered in and he sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Matthew then narrates uh, the phases of Jesus' trial here before the the religious authorities. He actually narrates the, the second and the third phase, the first phase Uh, We are indebted to uh, Luke's gospel to talk to us about his time before, uh, excuse me, John's gospel about his time before Annas. 
But Jesus successfully uh, passes his trial, as it were. He speaks in such a way that his declaration of allegiance is unquestionable. He, he made the good confession before uh, the religious authorities here, and he will make the good confession before Pilate. But Matthew now, in his narrative, will, will turn to Peter's trial. And, and we're going to see the, the, the contrast, the very stark contrast, really, between Jesus' is, is a good confession and Peter's a terrible confession, as it were, because Peter makes no confession at all. In fact, Peter fails miserably in his test. Jesus passes his test. Peter fails miserably in hers, in his rather, and in the process um, descends the proverbial staircase one fateful step at a time down into spiritual ruin. At any point along the way, We need to be reminded of this reality that Peter should have stopped. He should have turned back. And indeed, by the power of the Spirit of God, he could have stopped and he could have turned back. But he didn't. And step by step, he descended lower and lower and lower until he reached rock bottom. Until he reached rock bottom. Follow along as I read the text. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is a tragic account, a tragic account. And as we look at it together this morning, there are some lessons I believe that we can draw from this. In fact, I think there are at least nine lessons, nine lessons that we can learn from our study here of Peter's denial so that we might stand firm for Christ. We're going to need to move quickly in order to cover nine lessons out of this text. And we're not going to develop them all fully to be sure. But I'd like to at least introduce the thoughts to you for something for your own further study or in your small groups as you process this together. But let's begin here with these nine lessons. Lesson number one, wrong place, wrong time. Lesson number one, wrong place, wrong time. Now again, we are indebted here to the other gospel writers and we benefit from their parallel accounts of the events of that evening because it adds detail, it adds color, it helps to to round out what is going on here. And specifically, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22 and verse 
55 tells us that when Peter entered into the courtyard of the complex of the high priest, that there was a fire that had been lit there in order to keep the people warm. And that um, Peter went over to the fire and he sat and he was warming himself by the fire in the company of the enemies of Jesus. So Peter is sitting around the fire warming himself. And in the firelight, again, Peter tells us that there is a young slave girl. She is referenced here in Matthew's Gospel in verse 69. There's a young slave girl and she is staring at Peter in the firelight. Luke again, 2256, says she stared intently at him. So you can kind of get the idea. It's obviously night. There's a fire. It's flickering. It's providing light and so forth. And she's on, likely on one side of the fire, he on the other. And she is staring at him through the flickering flames of the fire. And she, and she has just got her gaze locked on him. You can imagine how unnerving it would start to become, and eventually she bursts out, as recorded here in, in verse 69, that you too were with Jesus the Galilean. Now what caused her to, to make this observation, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Notice that it's, she is not accusing him really of anything you know, sinister. She's not accusing him of rebellion. She's not accusing him of blasphemy. She is making the observation that, that you too were with Jesus the Galilean. You were with him. Why does she say that? Again, we don't know. How does she say that? We don't know. I mean, maybe it's the way he dressed. Maybe it's the way he spoke. Later on, there's certainly that indication that, that his, uh, his accent, you know, not from around these parts, you know, you know, showed up to her. But it's obvious to her, whatever it is that provokes this in her, it's obvious to her that after staring at him for a while, that she recognizes that he is from the north. He is from Galilee, and he was with Jesus the Galilean. He's not from Jerusalem. He's not from southern Israel, he is from up north, and up north they're, you know, they're a bit backward, they're a little socially awkward, and they're not sophisticated like us, particularly me as a slave girl. Obviously, I'm extrapolating here, but you know, a slave girl in the house of the high priest. We got class, and they don't. So maybe that's it, I'm not sure, but whatever it is, she picks it out. And and notice that she um she doesn't say it to anybody but him. She just kind of, she speaks it to him. Now others overhear it, but she's speaking to him. Now Peter, he is unprepared. He is absolutely unprepared by this and this outburst, and he gets caught off guard. He gets caught off guard, and he's caught off guard by the, by the least threatening person you can imagine. I mean, it's not like there's a soldier that's saying this. It's not like it's a, uh, you know, uh, one of the servants of the high priest or anything like that. It, it's, it's not even a, a, a full-grown woman, as it were. It's a slave girl. It's just a slave girl. And, and she makes this statement, and he is completely thrown off by it. He's thrown off by it. Now, how does that happen? How does big, tough Peter, you know, he was the guy with the sword, you know, he attacks the, the uh, soldiers and so forth just a couple of hours before. How is it now that a slave girl undoes him? 
And I'd like to suggest to you that one of the, one of the reasons for all of that is that it's basically the wrong place at the wrong time. Peter is in the wrong place, and he's there at the wrong time. He has followed Jesus, as I said, right into the heart of the enemy camp, and he has done so without any obvious plan of what he's going to do when he gets there. He he's just follows along. Verse 58, it says here that, that he followed as far as the courtyard and he entered in. And notice he says that he sat down with the officers to see the outcome. He's just there to observe. He's, you know, just kind of what's going to happen from all of this. And so he's just there without a purpose. And he has put himself in this incredible predicament. And he, and he finds himself sitting around the fire with the very enemies of his Lord, and he's warming his hands by the fire. This is not the right place to be, Peter. Wrong place. Wrong place. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3 says, The prudent sees evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Peter is definitely naive at this point, entering in as he does into the very heart of the enemy camp. Beyond that, as I say wrong time, I think it's pretty clear from the text that Peter is tired. Peter is physically spent. They have been up all night long. It has been a long and busy day. Before that, it's been a long and difficult and busy week. This is the Passion Week. They have been getting up early in the morning. They've been staying until late in the evening. They've been in the temple Monday and Tuesday. And there have been these intense spiritual conflicts that have been going on between Jesus and the religious authorities. And so I think Peter is spent And beloved, it's just a a recognition of reality that when we are physically tired, we are spiritually susceptible. God made us body and soul. And And the soul affects the body and the body affects the soul. And when we are physically spent, we are in a weakened condition and we are more susceptible to temptation, as it were. And so Peter finds himself in this position. He is tired. Beyond that, he is emotionally drained. Peter is emotionally drained. We're again told by Luke in Luke twenty-two forty-five that there in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that actually Peter had dozed off. He had fallen asleep. But interestingly, Luke says that they slept from sorrow. They slept from sorrow. That is, that they were so uh, overcome with the emotion of grief and so forth, with Jesus, all the things he had been telling them, and, and they're trying to process it and so forth, that, that he, they fall asleep. I think you could, could rightfully infer they cried themselves to sleep. So he is emotionally drained or spent at this time. In fact, John chapter 14 and verse 1, where Jesus says to them there in the upper room, Let not your heart be troubled. They are, they are unsettled by all that has been going on. So they are physically tired, they are emotionally spent, they are vulnerable. And so here's Peter. And beloved, there are times when, when um, we're ready to stand, right? We're ready to stand, we're ready to do battle. And there are times we're not. There are times when it would be we would be well advised to, um, to retreat, to prepare, and then to return and re-engage in the battle. And I think that this is one of those times for Peter. Now, this is not a contradiction of what Peter writes in, 
in 1 Peter 3.15, where he talks about being always ready, right, to make a defense for the hope that lies within you. Uh, that is to be our general disposition. If, in, if in the context there of 1 Peter, it's in persecution. And so as persecution comes, we as believers need to be ready when, when called upon to speak for Jesus and the, and the hope we have in eternal life. And why would we suffer in this life with a hope in a life to come where we need to be prepared to say something? And that's what Peter tells us. And it's not a contradiction, though, I don't think, to, to recognize that, that, you know, there are, that t- there are those times in our lives when, when fighting in this moment is maybe not the best idea. Let's retreat, let's retool, let's rest, and let's return and then do battle. So young people, maybe it's the classroom setting for you. Maybe you're, you, know, you arrive at class and, and uh, you know, the teacher says something or whatever and, and, and you're just not ready for it. You're not prepared. And so you open your mouth and you get slaughtered. It might be wiser to, to just refrain in that moment and go home and, and think about it and, and maybe study the issue a little and come back prepared to, to engage your teacher or your professor on the particular topic when you're ready to, to explain things to him and to speak more clearly about your commitment to Jesus Christ. So, a lesson, I think, in this is wrong place, wrong time. Wrong place, wrong time. Second lesson. Lying leads to more lying. Lying leads to more lying. There are three denials here. Verse 70, verse 72, and verse 74. Each denial becomes more wicked than the one before. Each denial becomes more passionate than the one before. Each each denial builds upon the one before and, and drags Peter down deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, one of the advantages of telling the truth is that you don't need to remember what you said to anybody, right? But lying has a way of compounding itself. It, one lie never stays by itself. Lies build on lies build on lies. And that's exactly what happens here. So notice the first lie here. Peter, he is, uh, he is caught off guard by the statement that the servant girl makes. You too are with Jesus the Nazareth, or the Galilean. And then verse 70, he denies it. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, because the statement that she says you were with Jesus the Galilean is heard by those around the fire, Peter, notice what it says here, he denied it before them all. So he says it not just to her, but he says it out loud to everybody. This is not a good way to plant a flag. Okay? In front of everybody, he says, right, I don't know what you're talking about. What? Right? What? He he faints ignorance of the whole thing. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. No idea at all. Well, it's starting to get hot around the fire in more ways than one, right? So Peter gets up, right? Verse 71, he gets up and he, and he moves away from the fire. Hey, listen, eh, I don't know if I want to be in the light here, right? So he moves and, and he moves to the gateway, verse 71. You see it? He retreats to the, to the, to the gate area of the, of, the, of the palace of the high priest. 
And uh, while he is there uh, at, the, at the palace of the high priest, the, the pressure continues to intensify. He doesn't get away from anything. And another servant, verse 71, when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there. So this time, another servant girl, she doesn't just address him. She addresses everybody and she says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now what's Peter going to do? What? So what does Peter do? He, he denies it again. But, but notice his denial goes further. The first one was, what? This one instead is that he denies it with an oath. You see it in verse 72. I do not know the man. Basically, Peter adds perjury now to his denial. He swears an oath. He basically says that uh, may God do to me if I know this woman. God is my witness. I have no idea what you're talking about. And he calls God to witness that reality. Beloved, the the ante is being upped. When you now call God to witness your lies, you're definitely not in a good place. You're not in a good place. And Peter is not in a good place now. In fact, at this point in time, Peter is in the process of saving his life and losing his soul. He is sacrificing his soul to save his life. Third, Luke tells us, Luke 22, 59, that about an hour passes between the second and the third denial. So that second denial is kind of hanging there for about an hour. And at this point, some, some bystanders come up, right? Verse 73, a little later, Matthew says, Luke says an hour later, a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Now, Peter hasn't said much according to Matthew's gospel. So I'm suspecting that Matthew's not giving us a record of every single thing that is said. So while Peter is trying to appear nonchalant, trying to mix in, you know, whatever, engage in small talk, keep his ear open, figure out what's going on, evidently his accent continues to come forward. And those of you who have accents, you know what I'm talking about. It's hard to keep it under wraps. And so Peter's accent comes out here. And so some bystanders come up to him and say to him, you you are surely one of them because you talk like a Galilean. I can remember years ago, many years ago, uh, living in Texas, and uh, I was in seminary at the time, and I was working in a a motel in order to try to support the family, and I worked at the front front desk as a clerk. And I can remember a phone call one time from one of the rooms, and uh, the person on the other end said, y'all got iron? Now, I'm from Massachusetts, Boston. Y'all got iron? I said, excuse me? Y'all got iron? I said, I'm sorry. I I do not know what you're asking me for. She said, iron. You got iron? I got to iron my clothes. I said, oh, an iron. Yes, ma'am, we have an iron. We'll we'll bring it right to your room. Y'all got iron? You got marbles in your mouth? Right? I mean, it, it shows. And so it shows for Peter. 
It shows for Peter. And, and so they, they, they call him out on this. But, but interestingly, again, uh, we find out from, from Luke's gospel that it's a relative of Malchus. Now, you remember Malchus, he was the guy who lost an ear. I mean, only temporarily, right? Because Jesus put it back on again. But, but it was a relative of Malchus the earless who, who leads this, right? I know you, right? You're the guy who cut off my uncle's ear. Besides which, you talk funny. And look how Peter responds, verse 74. He began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. Do not know the man. Now, chronologically, beloved, it's probably about this time that that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin have pronounced their their verdict on Jesus back here in in verses 65 and 66, right? Where, Where he says, you've heard the blasphemy, what do you think? And they say, he deserves death. So, at that point, uh, they're going to leave Jesus bound from the, the hall there, and they're going to take him to the dungeon and to hold him until they can gather the entire Sanhedrin at first light and bring him before them, maybe to the temple, likely to the temple area, and they can, have, and they can pronounce the official legal judgment on him. So they're going to put him in a holding tank. And so they're going to, they're going to take him across the courtyard to the dungeon. And it's right there at that time where where Peter now has descended into the very lowest realm, as it were, down these treacherous steps where he denies with with a curse and, and swearing, I do not know the man. And there is some difference of opinion here as to what it actually means when it says that he curses and swears. Uh, I think what it definitely does not mean is that he doesn't use four-letter words. Okay, so, you know, we hear the word cursing, and we tend to think of all these words that have four letters in them that are naughty and we shouldn't say. That's not what's happening here. What he is doing is he is calling down curses. Okay, he is calling down curses. And it's, it's possible he is calling them down upon himself and basically saying, may God do to me such and such and such if... I really know who he is, right? I do not know the man. May God slay me if I'm lying. That's possible. Or it is equally possible that he is calling down curses on Jesus himself. It is equally possible that Jesus is the object of the verb and that what he is basically saying is uh, he is cursing Jesus. He is, he is um, setting him apart and, and saying, may God curse that man. I have nothing to do with him. Later Roman emperors, by the way, um, insisted that, uh, that Christians who were being persecuted and so forth demonstrate their allegiance to the Roman Empire by calling down curses on Christ. So if they, they would say to them, curse Jesus and live. Curse Jesus and live. So it's possible that that's exactly what Peter is doing here. Or he is calling God to curse him. Either way, really bad. Really bad. And it's at that moment, when Peter is at his lowest point, Jesus being led across the courtyard, looks over his shoulder and sees Peter. And the look from Christ, not a word, just a look, 
And beloved, I've, I've got to believe that, it, that it's a, a look of love, a loving look, absolutely undoes Peter. Absolutely undoes him. Wrong place, wrong time. Lying leads to more lying. Third, pride goes before a fall. Pride goes before a fall. This is Peter. He has been very bold up to this point, right? He has been very self-confident in terms of his ability to, to remain faithful to Jesus no matter what. Earlier here in the same chapter, just turn back to verse 33. Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if, all, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Listen, Jesus, all the rest of them, you know, yeah, maybe they will, but not me. Not me. I will go to my death rather than deny you. And here we are a few hours later. How does that happen? I think it happens because Peter's confidence is rooted in his flesh. Peter's confidence is rooted in his flesh, and his flesh proves no match for the pressure of the moment. No match at all. Peter is is relying on his strength. He's saying, everybody else may turn away, O Lord, but not me. Not me. I've got, I know that you are the Christ, right? The Son of the living God. I believe you are the Messiah of God. My faith is orthodox. My commitment is strong. Everybody else may melt, but I will never melt. Never melt. Those are the words of a proud man. Those are the words of a person who has, um, at that moment, when those words are, ver- are uh, voiced, has, has lost touch with the reality of the weakness of the human nature. And that under the right circumstances, under the right pressure, anyone and everyone will wilt. And Peter wilts. Now, there's a difference. We need to point this out. There's a difference between being confident in our position in Christ and confident of our ability to speak for Christ in a particular moment. And it's a very important difference to note. Paul will say in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, right, that, now, uh, that I am convinced, now I got that wrong, he'll say, um, help me out, what will he say? There we go. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Paul is absolutely convinced that, that where he stands in Christ is unassailable and secure. He'll go on to say later in the chapter, right, that, that, that whom God has predestined, he is going to bring about his great work of conforming them to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 28 and 29. So to be confident in our position in Christ is something that a Christian should have. There is plenty of, of authority in the Word of God to know for sure that you are a follower of Christ and that that can and will never change, that you are a child of God. You should be confident in these things. That is different, however, from being confident in your ability to speak for Jesus in a particular moment. Particularly when you're relying upon your own 
um, force of character, your own intellectual achievements, your own piety, whatever it is that makes you think that, listen, it doesn't matter what circumstance you put me in, I always speak for Christ, right? Nobody intimidates me. Dangerous words. Paul says, first. Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. You think you stand, you think you're, you're unassailable, then you better take heed, you better pay attention, because a fall is right around the corner for you. And in fact, James tells us in James chapter 4, and verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to those who stand on their own pride and achievement. Fourth, fourth lesson. A lack of prayer makes you vulnerable. A lack of prayer makes you vulnerable. And it really kind of flows out of number three, doesn't it, right? Pride goes before a fall. Number four, a lack of prayer makes you vulnerable. Think with me. Earlier in the evening, they're in Gethsemane, right? They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does Jesus say to them? He says, pray, right? Um, verse 41, chapter 26. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. What temptation? The very temptation that is about to face them, he tells them. Right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter doesn't sense the need to pray. He falls asleep. He falls asleep. And he's not alone in this, of course, but... Peter is the focus here because he's in the enemy camp. They don't sense the need to pray. They don't, they don't recognize the power of the future temptation. And so they are lacking prayer. And without washing their heart and mind in prayer, they are vulnerable in the moment. And we can identify with that. We can identify with that. We will often acknowledge our need to pray. Isn't that true? I bet if I were to go around this room and ask each and every one of you, do you pray enough, almost without exception, you would say no. Right? And me too. But, few of us do anything about it. We are quick to recognize that, that prayer is necessary for spiritual strength, but, but few of us do anything about it. And certainly in terms of regular and consistent prayer, that we would stand firm and strong before a watching world. Beloved, we, we need to begin our day that way. We need to begin our day by, by asking God to help us to stand firm. We don't know what circumstances are going to present themselves. We have no idea in the providence of God where we're going to find ourselves even an hour after we leave the house. And so we need that air cover, if you like. We need to, we need to pray. We need to humble our heart before the Lord. We need to ask for ourselves. We need to ask for our spouses. We need to ask for our children. We need to ask for each other that we would stand firm in the face of whatever might come. I'm reminded of Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah? He gets news that the, uh, the city of, of Jerusalem hasn't been rebuilt, right? The gates are still burned with fire and so forth. And uh, his heart is broken over this, and, and his, uh, he's a cupbearer to the king. And so his, his job to, you know, to taste the wine and make sure that it's not poisoned, right? So the king doesn't get poisoned. So it's a place of high responsibility. He's in the presence of the king all the time. And, uh, and you're supposed to have a really happy face when you're in the presence of the king, or the king gets uncomfortable around you, and then he makes it uncomfortable for you. 
potentially like deadly uncomfortable. And so he says to Nehemiah, he says, uh, what's wrong with you? You're all down in the mouth. And it's really interesting there because what Nehemiah says is, I prayed to the Lord and I spoke to the king. And immediately Nehemiah just rips off a quick prayer and says, I don't know what he says, but, but something along the idea of, Lord, help me. And then he opens his mouth and he begins to tell the king, hey, the city of my fathers is you know, still, the gates are burned and it's a laughing stock and so forth. And, and he makes his petition and the king says, hey, you know, what, draw from the royal treasury. How long do you need to be gone to fix the place? And, and he gives him this amazing commission to go and to rebuild the walls of the city. But notice Nehemiah's approach, right? He prays to the Lord, he speaks to the king. So we need that kind of, of mindset where we're praying the lack of prayer makes us vulnerable. Number five. Number five. Tears do not remove guilt. Tears do not remove guilt. As we said, this, uh, at this point, right, verse, um, get to the right place here, verse uh, 75, Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times, and we went out and wept bitterly. This, this uh, third denial happens where Jesus is within earshot. As I say, I think he's being marched across the courtyard, and, and he hears it, and he turns, and he looks at Peter. And at that point in time, Peter is absolutely broken. He's broken. Luke indicates that. Matthew says here, he went out and he wept bitterly. He went out and he wept bitterly. He is completely undone. Now think with me, beloved. What if the, the account of the life of Peter ended here? What if there were no more information about Peter's life? What conclusion might we draw from this? Particularly when you, when you kind of look here, um, contextually, look at you know, chapter 27 begins with someone else who has denied Jesus. And that one goes out and hangs himself, right? So, so if the story ended here, this would be grim. This would be incredibly grim. In fact, Peter's name disappears from Matthew's gospel from this point forward. He's not mentioned by name in the rest of the gospel. Now, he doesn't disappear because if you go to chapter 28... The angel speaks uh, to the ladies in in verse 7. It says, Go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. Behold, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Um, And then uh, verse 16 and following, But the eleven disciples proceed to Galilee to the mount which Jesus had designated. So, eleven disciples, right? You had twelve. Number twelve is gone here in the beginning of chapter 27. He hangs himself. And so the 11 are left, and and clearly Peter is part of the 11 that go on to Galilee. And so we we can certainly infer from this, and then it's confirmed by all kinds of additional New Testament evidence, that that Peter repents and returns and is is re-enfolded among the disciples, in fact, among the apostles. So Peter is not lost. 
That says to me that, that evidently here at the end of verse 75, that it says where he went out and wept bitterly, that his, that his tears were genuine tears. They were genuine tears. That he confessed his sin. And he was reinstated among the, the followers and, and among the apostles and, and over which he will ultimately reassume leadership. So what is it with tears? Are tears necessary to repentance? Do you have to cry in order to repent? Is, a, is the absence of tears a sign of no repentance? Is the presence of tears a sign of repentance? No. No. They are evidently a sign of repentance here in Peter's case, but they're not always essential. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 17, just mark it down, check it on your own. We, we have the case of Esau. You remember Esau? He's the guy who sold his birthright for a, a bowl of nasty soup. He's the one whose birthright was then later kind of swiped, or swiped from him, as it were, by his brother, right? And it says, it says in the text that he wept bitterly. He cried. But Hebrews tells us that his crying had nothing to do with his repentance because Esau was an ungodly man. It had nothing to do with his repentance. What Esau cried about was the mess that he was in, the fix that he had got himself into, the, the terrible consequences that were coming upon him because of his own faithlessness. And so that is the same thing with tears. Tears can be tears of genuine sorrow and repentance, or they can be tears of sorrow, what Paul calls in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-10, through 10, that are the tears of worldly sorrow, which is basically, I have messed up my life, and I'm, you know, the consequences of all of this are bringing calamity upon me, and I'm, and I'm bitterly uh, sorrowful for all that has come upon me. And so one weeps, but it has nothing to do with my relationship to God. So tears in and of themselves are not a sure sign one way or the other. The only thing that removes guilt, beloved, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can remove our guilt. He alone, when we turn from our sin, when we confess our sin to Him, when we come to Him in faith and bow the knee before Him and, and call out for Him to save us and, and for our sin to be to be counted not against us, but against him in his crucifixion. When, when we come to, our, to him in that way, then our guilt is removed. And only then. Parenting tip. When you're raising your kids, some kids cry really easily, some kids don't cry at all. Don't, uh, yeah. Don't fall into a trap of measuring your child's repentance by the quantity of the liquid. Okay? Bad idea. Bad idea. Okay. Tears do not remove guilt. Oh. We're good, right? Are you going anywhere today? <laughs> He's not going anywhere. All right, here we go. Number six. We've got to finish this. Number six. Your fall will not be fatal unless you let it. Your fall will not be fatal unless you let it. Okay? Peter is able to return to Christ and to follow him. Why? Because he did not remain in a position of separation. 
He didn't remain there. In other words, he repented of his sin and he came back, just like the prodigal son of Luke 15. The father's arms are always open wide. If we will but turn and head towards the father, if we would just point our face in the father's direction, he will hike up his skirt, as it were, and he will run towards us. And Peter does exactly that. He doesn't remain separated from ever. Forever. Judas, different story. Peter turns, God embraces him wholeheartedly and restores him back. And beloved, how important that is, right? For you and I. There's no one here in this room who has not failed in their commitment to Christ. There's no one here who has not failed to speak up for Christ. There's no one here that in the moment of pressure, you know, the mouth goes dry and nothing is said while someone blasphemes your Lord in your presence. We're all guilty. But there's a way back. There's always a way back. There is no sin from which there is not a way back if we will but turn and flee to the cross of Christ. And that is incredibly encouraging. Incredibly encouraging. Beloved, it doesn't matter what you have done or what you have not done, what you have said or what you have not said. The way back is open, wide open before you, and it proceeds past the foot of the cross. Today, this morning, if if you're in a place where, where you're separated from Christ and you know it, the Father's arms are wide open to you, wide open to you. Will you but turn and come to the Savior? If you do, you will find him wrapping you up, as it were, in his arms, his loving embrace, restoring the relationship that you once had. Seven. Kind of leads into it, huh? What do I do if I mess up? What should I do if I mess up? Confess, repent, return. Start again. Confess, repent, return, start again. What if I mess up again tomorrow? Confess, repent, return, start again. It's the same. The Father will have his arms open for you. I had people say to me, you know, I've blown my testimony at work. I, I can't plant my flag. I, I've blown my testimony. You know, I, it was a situation, and I lost my cool, and I went off on my coworker, and, you know, I've, I can't, you know, I can't let anybody know I'm a Christian, so I've got to keep it now hidden. No, beloved, no. Uh-uh, no, no. Listen, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is, is to say to the world that you're a sinner, that you mess up, but that Christ has, has taken the punishment of your sin and your guilt has been cleared by him and that you have been restored to the Father, that you are forgiven and forgiving. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're perfect. And so listen, if you've messed up at work, you know, you've said something or, or you know, done something or blown it in some way, 
You know, you don't got to quit and go get another job and try to start again, or you don't got to keep your light under a bushel basket for the next 25 years. Can't let anybody know you're a Christian because you messed up. No, you need to come in and demonstrate your Christianity. And you want to know how you do that? You come in and you go to the person you sinned against and you humble your heart before them and you confess your sin to them. And you ask them to forgive you. And then you use that as an opportunity to explain forgiveness eternally through Jesus Christ your Lord. You use your sin as a basis to preach the gospel. And if you do it, by the way, you're going to start to watch people backpedal. Right? You say, I need, I need to ask your forgiveness. I have sinned against you in this way. And be specific. Usually what they say, oh, no, it's, you, know, it's, uh, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Or whatever. No, this is not a mistake. No, when I said that in that moment, and I was angry with you, my heart had wickedness towards you. That's what the Bible tells me, and that's the reality. So, so use it to preach the gospel. That's what you should do when you mess up. Number eight, restoration may be painful. Restoration may be painful. Although forgiven by Christ, Peter still needed to go through a public restoration process, didn't he? He's among the apostles, he's among the disciples, uh, but, but he has to go through this restoration process. And it's recorded for us in John's Gospel. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19 Right? Peter is there. Jesus appears to them. And Jesus asked Peter three times, Do you what? Love me, Peter. Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. You know all things. Right? Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. So, so once for every denial, Jesus publicly restores Peter to that position of leadership among the apostles, in front of the apostles. And, and beloved, that had to be painful. That had to be painful. Nobody likes to have their sin paraded in front of others. Forgiveness cancels guilt. Forgiveness cancels guilt. Forgiveness cancels the debt of sin. But forgiveness does not necessarily remove or cancel the consequence of sin. The consequences may still go with us. And it be part of the restoration process. And it may be painful. It may be painful. Number nine, save the best for last. Christ is sovereign over all. Amen? Christ is sovereign over all. Listen, Jesus foresaw and made provision for Peter's defection. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Peter says... Satan has demanded permission to sift you, Peter, but I have prayed for you. And when you turn, right, come back. Come back. Jesus made a temporal provision for Peter's defection. He made an eternal provision for the guilt of Peter's defection as he made an eternal payment for the guilt of mine and yours in his cross. Right? God is sovereign over all. There is no sin. That it's bigger than God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds, superabounds. Romans chapter 5. Beyond that, it's interesting to me, I think, the end here of verse 75. 
where Matthew reminds us that Jesus has said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus had made that prediction, right, earlier in the evening. Peter, before a rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Interestingly here, within the context, right before this account, the last thing we have is the, is the, the, uh, the Jewish authorities abusing Christ, right? And, and one of the ways they abuse him, they spit in his face, they punch him, but one of the ways they abuse him, we're told here, Mark tells us they blindfolded him, but they slap him in the face and they say, come on, Messiah, tell us, prophesy, who struck you? What kind of a Messiah can't tell, can't prophesy, can't know these things? Right? It was a way, we said this last week, it was a way to, 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 demonst- to demonstrate that Jesus is not Messiah from their point of view. And Jesus doesn't go for their games. But Matthew tells us Jesus is a prophet. Because Jesus predicted Peter's defection down to the nth degree. And so we have right here Matthew's retort to to the Sanhedrin's mocking of Jesus. Jesus is a prophet. Because exactly what he said would come to pass came to pass. Christ is sovereign over all, beloved. Sovereign over all. Now this account of Peter's denials has through the centuries really, I think, been a source of of, uh, instruction and encouragement to believers. We can all identify here with what's going on with Peter, particularly when believers fall into great sin. There's a lot of encouragement here. There's a lot of instruction here. And and I I pray that we can learn from it. I, I pray that the Spirit of God takes the, the truth of this passage and applies it to my heart and to yours. And we learn something from this. And I pray that we don't fall into Peter's great sin of denial here. That, that when the opportunity comes to speak, that, that we will speak. But if we don't. But if in the moment we find ourselves relying on our own flesh and it, and it deserts us. We find ourselves prayerless. We find ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. We find ourselves lying. Recognize this. There is always room back. And it goes by the cross. Come to the cross of Christ. And he will receive you. Let's pray. Our Father, there is great instruction and there is great encouragement. We don't rejoice in Peter's tragic failures. We don't use them to rationalize or excuse our own. We recognize, our Father, that we sin against you, against the Christ, regularly, openly and publicly, sometimes frequently, privately, quietly. But we can take the encouragement of knowing that forgiveness is always available to us. And seeing Peter to come back from such a a wicked and, and terrible failure gives us hope in our own failures 
And may your Holy Spirit apply the truth of this passage to our hearts individually this time. Each and every one of us, may we receive from this exactly what you want for us to have. We want to be a people of faith. We want to be obedient to Christ. And Father, for those who are here this morning who are without Christ, they have not the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit. They know about Christ, but they do not know him, and more importantly, he does not know them. May you open their eyes today and save their souls. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.